0: We live in a region that is often referred to as the Bible Belt. The term Bible Belt was first employed in 1925 by the American writer H.L. Mencken as he was reporting on the famous Scopes Monkey Trial which took place that year in Dayton, Tennessee. The name stuck and was soon adopted by both journalists in the popular media, as well as by sociologists in academia to refer derisively to those regions in the United States in which Southern Baptists, Methodists, and Evangelical Christians were the predominant religious group. So using that criteria, the Bible Belt encompasses much of the American South and Midwest including Springfield, which sits on the very northern edge of the Bible Belt. And what characterizes the Bible Belt, apart from its entrenched political and social conservatism, is its long-established cultural Christianity. In the Bible Belt, the vast majority of the populace identify as Christians and in particular as Christians of an evangelical Protestant variety. This means that in the Bible Belt there are an abundance of churches. When people come here from outside of the Bible Belt, they're struck by the impression that there's there's a church on every corner. And conversely, when people from the Bible Belt go elsewhere, they find themselves wondering where all the churches are. A February 9th article from earlier this year, in the Springfield News Leader set out to answer the age-old question of whether there were more churches or Chinese restaurants in the Springfield area, which is famous for both its churches, this is the world headquarters of the Assemblies of God, and for its cashew chicken. David Leong of Springfield is credited with creating the dish many decades ago. The results, there are six times as many churches, around 300, as Chinese restaurants, 54, in the city of Springfield, not to mention the surrounding areas. That's a whole lot of cashew chicken, and that's a whole lot of churches. But I want to pose a question. Is that a good thing? I mean, I suppose that it would be if most or maybe even just half of those 300 churches were authentic, biblical, healthy congregations that believe in and submit to the authority of the Scriptures and proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm convinced that that's not the case, and I don't think it's even close And I'm convinced that the same holds true for most of those who self-identify as Christians. Now, I know that this is true on the national level, where, according to a 2016 survey conducted by the Barna Group, 73% of Americans identify as Christians, while only 31% are what George Barna calls Christians practicing Christians, and only 7% are evangelical Christians according to a specific set of criteria, like an experience of conversion, a belief in justification by faith alone, a commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture. So if we acknowledge that what Barna calls an evangelical Christian the Bible simply calls a Christian, then while 73% of Americans regard themselves as Christians, only about 7% actually are by a biblical definition of the term. That's an enormous gap between reality and inauthenticity. While that national gap between self-identified Christians and actual Christians may differ somewhat in the Bible Belt generally or in the Springfield area particularly, I don't think it differs all that greatly. In other words, even in the Bible Belt, I think that there is ample evidence to suggest that there is a tremendous gap between what we might call authentic Christianity and what we might call cultural Christianity. And that is not a good thing. In fact, it's a dangerous thing. It is dangerous when a community like ours has a multitude of churches, but very few of them are a reflection of a true New Testament church. It is dangerous when a community is filled with people who claim to be Christians, but in actuality are not. Why? Because it breeds confusion about what Christianity actually is. Nationally speaking, only 1 in 10 who claim to be Christians actually are by a biblical definition of the term. And even if locally that number is 2 in 10 or 3 in 10 or maybe even 4 in 10, which I doubt there's still a tremendous amount of confusion. And not only for the false believer who thinks he's going to heaven but actually isn't, there's confusion for those who observe that false believer and conclude that that must be how a Christian believes and behaves. Cultural Christianity, as opposed to authentic biblical Christianity, is dangerous because it cannot save all the while deceiving people into thinking that it can. And so this morning, I would like to attempt to clear up the confusion that has been created by Bible Belt cultural Christianity and explain what true Christianity actually is. Because this is Easter Sunday, and even though cultural Christianity appears to be dying out, as increasingly those who in times past would have identified as Christian no longer do so, yet many cultural Christians will still attend church on Easter morning as a family tradition or because it just seems like the right thing to do. That's why church attendance is historically high on this particular Sunday. And maybe that describes you. If so, I want you to know that I am really glad that you've come this morning. It's not by accident that you're here. It's by God's providence. And what I have to say to you this morning is of eternal relevance to your immortal soul. Because you need to know the difference between authentic Christianity and its cultural counterfeit. Because the only thing that leads to the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life is the real thing. So let's try to clear up the confusion created by this Bible Belt Christianity which surrounds us. And by God's grace, let's walk out of here this morning knowing that we embrace the real, the true thing. I have three points that I want to make from this morning's text I want to give you a little bit of roadmap of where we're going this morning. Number one, I want to show you the core of Christianity, the very epicenter of the Christian faith, which is the gospel of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Number two, I want to show you the culture of Christianity. Christianity, that is real Christianity, has a distinct ethos. It has a distinct feel about it. It's different from the world. And finally, I want to show you an example of what real conversion looks like by looking to blind Bartimaeus of Jericho and learning from him what it means to become a true follower of Jesus Christ. So let's start with the core of Christianity. What is Christianity all about? If you were to strip away everything that is external, all right? One's historical setting, geographic location, culture, ethnicity, socioeconomic level. If you were to disregard all of those things, if you were to disregard whether one worships in a cathedral in a large city or in a tent out in the bush or in a sanctanasium in the suburb like we have, you should still find the same essential core of the Christian faith. That is, if you were to ask a Christian from 1st century Judea or 5th century Rome, or 16th century Germany, or 19th century America, or 20th century China. If you were to ask an illiterate farmer from the 11th century, or a biochemist from the 21st century, what is the essence, what is the core of Christianity, they should all respond in a similar fashion. Because Christianity is not some amorphous subjective philosophy which can be adapted and molded to whatever context and whatever preference one desires. Christianity is not the generic teachings of some Zen master who may or may not have existed, but whose teachings will help you live a better life and become a better person, whatever that may mean for you. That's not Christianity. Christianity is rooted in real events that really happen. and have real significance to our lives. Christianity is the worship of Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God, who really lived in Israel at the beginning of the first century, who really died on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem in the year 30 AD, who really rose from the dead three days later, Christianity is the belief that by virtue of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a sinner can be saved from the judgment and wrath of God by trusting in Jesus as their Savior and following Him as their Lord. Therefore, a Christian is a person who trusts Jesus as Savior, follows Him as Lord, and worships Him. As God. If you strip away everything else, that is what any Christian, anytime, anywhere, will say is the core of the Christian faith, or else one could argue they really wouldn't be a Christian in the biblical sense at all. Now, I make this claim because this is exactly the way Jesus talked. Look at verses 32 to 34. Where for the third time in as many chapters, Jesus stops his disciples to inform them exactly what will happen when they arrive in Jerusalem. Verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Now, both sacred scripture and secular history tell us that Jesus was correct. Everything happened to him just as he predicted. His betrayal, his rejection, his trial, his sufferings, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him when he arrived in Jerusalem, and he knew it with astounding clarity. And yet he went anyway. And he went with such a steadfast determination that his disciples were amazed. Even though they were afraid of what lay ahead. See, they knew that Jesus was under the sentence of death. They they clearly didn't comprehend what his death would mean. But they, they could put two and two together. Not only had Jesus on two previous occasions announced his impending death... But they could read the signs. I mean, Jesus had spent the last three years offending just about everyone in power. They knew that there was a price on his head, and they knew that it was only a matter of time before his enemies cashed it in. And yet here he was, out in front of them, setting the pace on his own death march, leading the way into the very lion's den of Jerusalem. And they must have imagined that this trek would end in their own death as well, hence their mixture of amazement and fear. So we need to ask the question, if Jesus knew with such intensity and clarity that he was going to die when he got to Jerusalem, why did he go? Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem knowing that suffering and death awaited for him? And the answer is, he went because he had to. He was under a divine necessity. In his first passion prediction in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus used that language of obligation. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed. He went because he must, he had to, but also because he wanted to. That's why the author of Hebrews writes that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, endured the cross and despised its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus suffered the agony and the shame of the cross For the joy that was set before him. What joy is that? The joy of saving the people whom he died to redeem. The joy of reconciling them to the Father. And the joy of receiving from them the glory and the praise throughout endless ages. That is why Jesus suffered. That is why he died. That is why he came. And that's exactly what he tells his disciples down in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus did not come primarily to perform miracles, to give sight to the blind, to make the lame walk and the deaf hear, to heal the sick, to cleanse the leper, to raise the dead. That's not primarily why he came. Jesus did not come to teach people how to be better husbands and fathers or wives and mothers. He did not come to show people how to live better, happier, more fulfilling lives. He did not come to help people be more self-affirming and to help them achieve their dreams. He did not come to advocate for social justice or to promote capitalism or socialism or any other political ideology. Unbelievers non-Christians have all manner of notions as to who Jesus is and what he came to do and what Christianity is all about, but Christians know that the core of the Christian faith must be located in Jesus' own central mission and message Jesus's entire life was directed towards Jerusalem, where he would serve sinners by giving his life as a ransom for For many. Now, that word ransom is an important one. It refers to the price paid to secure the release of a prisoner from jail. And what is particularly in view is a debtor's prison. In ancient times, and even not so ancient times, if a person defaulted on a loan, there was no declaring bankruptcy. Instead, that person was cast into a debtor's prison where they would languish until such a time as a friend or a relative could pay off their debt because they, being in prison, could not work to earn money on their own. So a debtor's only hope of freedom, therefore, was to be ransomed by someone else with both the will and the means to pay. Now the Bible says that we are that debtor. It says that our sin has placed us in debt to the justice of God. As the creator of the universe, God has given us life and breath and every good thing to enjoy. And in return, He requires of us love and worship and obedience and faith. But instead of rendering to God what He is owed, we've taken what He has invested in us and we've used it to rebel against His commands and to thumb our nose at His glory. We've lived in unrighteousness. We've wallowed in impurity and immorality. We've blasphemed His name. We've lived for our own evil pleasure rather than living for His eternal praise. And if you will search your heart and if you will search your conscience, you will know this to be true. The Holy Spirit will reveal it to you. He came to convict the world of unrighteousness. You have not lived as you ought. Instead of loving and trusting and worshiping and obeying and enjoying God as the centerpiece of your life, You've placed yourself at the center of your own little universe as if you were God. We are idolaters, every one of us, taking the investment which God has made in us and squandering it on the exaltation of self. And there is coming a day of reckoning. There is coming a day when God will call in our debt. There is coming a due date on the loan of life. And we'll have nothing to show for our lives. And on that day of judgment, we would be cast into an eternal debtor's prison, which the Bible calls hell, but for Christ, the Son of Man, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. When Christ died on the cross, he was offering his life of beautiful righteousness and perfect obedience to God as payment in full for our ugly and iniquitous debt. And because of His glory and because of His worth as the eternal Son of God, because it is so infinite, His life and His death is more than sufficient to redeem and to ransom many sinners. All, in fact, who will have Him. This is the core of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man. And ransomed sinners from hell by dying in their place in payment of their debt to God and then rising again on the third day to everlasting glory and joy in the midst of his redeemed people. All those who have embraced his death as payment of their debt, who have walked out into the freedom and sunshine of his grace and who now follow him as their Lord and their God. That's what Christianity is, and that's what a Christian is. Now the question for you is, is that the Christianity that you have learned? Is that the Christianity which you have embraced? Ask yourself that. And if the answer is no, is it really accurate to call yourself a Christian? If you've missed the core of the Christian faith, are you actually a Christian? Yet the offer remains this morning. You can be free from the prison of your sin. You can be free from the debt to God's justice All you must do to be real, to be true, to be forgiven, to be changed, is to embrace Jesus Christ as the ransom for your sin debt. Let the Son of Man serve you by paying the ransom for your sin. By faith, walk out of the prison of your sin and into the sunshine of His grace and begin to follow Jesus as your all-satisfying, all-glorious Lord and God. Once you do, though, you will find that the life to which Jesus calls you is radically different than the life that you lived before. Jesus does not ransom us from the prison of sin in order that we might continue to live in the very same way that we were living when we ran up that infinite debt of sin to begin with. He calls us to a new life. In fact, one of the ways that you can tell whether you are a true Christian or merely a cultural Christian is whether or not your life has been changed to its very foundations. Let me show you what I mean. Every time along his final trek to Jerusalem that Jesus announces his impending sufferings and death and resurrection, the disciples respond, with a complete misunderstanding of what his death means for them. After Jesus' first passion prediction in Mark chapter 8, Peter tried to rebuke him because the idea of a suffering Messiah did not fit in with his worldview and he did not like the implications for his own discipleship. I mean, how would following a suffering and dying Messiah lead to power and glory? So Jesus responded by teaching them that being his disciple means suffering for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, and that suffering is the only path to everlasting glory. Then after Jesus' second passion prediction, the disciples were arguing amongst themselves as to which among them was the greatest. And Jesus responded by teaching them that greatness in the kingdom comes through humble service, not through posturing for position. Well, now, in the aftermath of what is Jesus' third passion prediction, the same situation arises in which the disciples are grappling with one another over preeminence. And Jesus responds this third time with a combination of his first two responses. So look with me beginning at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able... And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom. For many. See, the request of James and John betrays their misunderstanding of Jesus' mission. It betrays their misunderstanding of the gospel itself. Even though Jesus had told them plainly on three occasions, he is going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, they still have not really believed him they still assume that he's going to Jerusalem in order to establish his kingdom, which, in fact, he was, just not in the way that they supposed. So they're trying to establish their claim as the men of greatest power and position, next to Jesus, of course, in the kingdom that they supposed Jesus was going to Jerusalem to inaugurate. And they wanted to do so before Peter or any of the others could nose in and lay claim to the right and the left hand of Jesus. In other words, they're like my two youngest children who argue over who gets the iPad, or my two oldest children who argue over who gets to sit in the front seat. They mistakenly think that the answer lies into who says mine first. Jesus' response speaks volumes about the nature of Christ's kingdom because in it he makes two all important points about what Christianity is like. First, he says, suffering is the path to glory. In response to their request, Jesus says, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now Jesus is talking about his impending suffering and death. And the sense of that verse is is that Jesus will not enter into his glory, the glory of his coming kingdom, apart from suffering and death, and neither will his disciples. The cup that Jesus drank was the cup... Of God's wrath against sin. The baptism that he underwent was his immersion into God's judgment against sinners. So the implied answer to Jesus's question is no. You cannot drink from my cup. You cannot be baptized with my baptism. But then he turns around and tells them something surprising that they will, in fact, drink a cup and they will, in fact, be baptized with a baptism in the sense that they too will suffer before they enter into the glory of his kingdom, though not in precisely the same way in which Jesus has. Jesus' sufferings were redemptive in nature. The Sufferings of his disciples are responsive in nature, but the end is the same. Jesus suffered for the everlasting glory and joy of his people, and we suffer for the everlasting glory, glory, and joy of others. We suffer for the good of others because by our sufferings, we demonstrate before the eyes of the world that Jesus is more to be desired than life and eternal joy of others is worth any price, even persecution and death. That's the way disciples think. Say, nobody thinks like that. Disciples do. Disciples are willing to lay down their lives that you might know Jesus. This is the culture, this is the ethos of Christianity. Then Jesus makes a second point, which is that service is the path to greatness. Which again is radically different from the ethos of the world, which says that power and position ought to be sought, and once attained, they ought to be exercised in such a way that others serve you in order to make your life more comfortable and enjoyable. I mean, isn't that the goal of life in the world? Climb the ladder, attain to power and position so that others can make your life easier and better. Jesus says it's exactly the opposite among his disciples. Jesus' disciples do not strive for power and position in order to be served. On the contrary, out of their new love for Christ, which is the inevitable and necessary fruit of that change that has been wrought in their hearts, Disciples of Jesus seek to serve. They seek to meet the needs of others, often at great cost to themselves. In short, true disciples of Jesus adopt the culture or the ethos of the Master, who did not come to be served, but to serve through suffering for the good of others. That is what makes them great in the kingdom of God. So true, authentic Christianity, it has a distinct flavor. It has a a taste. It has a distinct culture, a distinct ethos, and it ought to be tangibly felt when you walk into a New Testament church. No one here is ladder climbing. No one here is posturing for position. No one here is trying to prove that they're better than somebody else holier than somebody else, more righteous than somebody else. Power and position describes the culture of the world. Suffering and service describes the culture of the kingdom. And only those who walk this path, the path which Jesus himself trod, can be his disciples. Now there remains one more point to make from this morning's text. All right, we've seen the core of Christianity. Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection as a ransom for sinners. We've seen the culture of Christianity. The life of a Christ follower is not one of striving after power and position, but one of suffering in the service of love. Finally, the text this morning shows us a conversion to Christianity. The question is, how does one become a follower of Jesus? How does one receive the ransom which Christ has paid? How does one embark upon this new life of following Jesus, a life that is characterized by others-oriented service and leads to everlasting glory and joy? Well, in the last passage of Mark 10, we find a clear and compelling example of just such a conversion. Look with me at verse 46. And followed him on the way. Well, Jesus is getting cl- close to Jerusalem now, and it's almost the Passover. Jericho was only 18 miles northeast of Jerusalem, just five miles west of the Jordan River. And Jesus, along with a great throng of pilgrims, are heading up to Jerusalem for the feast. And there, sitting alongside the road, leading out of Jericho, leading to Jerusalem, sits a blind man begging alms of the pilgrims who are passing by. Now, undoubtedly, the presence of Jesus in Jericho created quite a stir so that the city was buzzing with excitement. Even a blind man could tell that something was happening, something different was taking place. Now how Bartimaeus came to find out about Jesus, Mark does not say. You can imagine that he had heard stories from the other pilgrims from up in Galilee who were passing by along their way to Jerusalem as they were talking about this Galilean rabbi, this carpenter from Nazareth who performed miracles and proclaimed a message of repentance and faith and the kingdom of God. But at any rate, he sensed that this was a moment. This was his moment. And he seized it with everything that he had. So let me briefly mention four stages of Bartimaeus' conversion. And then I'm going to end this sermon by applying these four stages to us. Number one, Bartimaeus heard of Jesus. The fact that Bartimaeus calls him son of David not once but twice shows that he had heard about Jesus, he'd heard about his miracles, he'd heard about his message, he knew about the coming Messiah. Son of David is a messianic title. And he connected the person of Jesus with the promise of the Messiah. And he said, this is he. Number two, he cried out to Jesus. See, simply knowing that Jesus was the Messiah Would accomplish nothing. He needed to get to Jesus. And so he cried out desperately, persistently, violently, even in the face of opposition and rebuke from those who were just trying to silence him. Just like those of whom Jesus spoke who take the kingdom of heaven by force, this man, Bartimaeus, would not be dissuaded. He would not be turned aside. He had determined that Jesus was his only hope and he was going to cry out until he got him. Third, he was healed by Jesus. When Jesus called him, he threw off his cloak, he sprang up and he went to him. And Jesus asked Bartimaeus the same question that he had asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? But instead of asking for power and position as they had, instead of asking for wealth or any other worldly desire, he asked for the healing of his desperate need. He wanted to see. Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. See, Bartimaeus' healing went far deeper than his eyes, far deeper than his physical sight. He was healed to the very depths of his soul. And we know this because upon being healed by Jesus, number four, he followed Jesus. Watch what Jesus says. Jesus says, go your way. But now Bartimaeus' way is with Jesus. So he follows Jesus on the way. On the way to where? On the way to Jerusalem. On the way to suffering. In the service of love. True faith follows Jesus. If there is no following, there is no faith. Bartimaeus was a follower of Christ and became one that day. In fact, Bartimaeus is the only person healed in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke whose name is mentioned, giving rise to the speculation that he was well known to the early church. In other words, he kept following Jesus. The point is is that Bartimaeus was not a cultural Christian. Bartimaeus was not a Bible Belt Christian. Bartimaeus was truly and deeply converted, and his conversion, therefore, is a paradigm for all true conversion today. Every real conversion will manifest those same four steps. So I want to close this message by asking, what about you? Have you been converted? Now I'm not asking you whether you were raised in a church, whether you believe in God, whether you have a superficial knowledge of Christ, whether you live under some vague notion that you should align your life with Judeo-Christian values, those are the things that make Bible-belt Christians. Those are the things that make cultural Christians. But Bible-belt cultural Christians are not real Christians. And they are not forgiven, and they are not saved, and they are not ransomed from the debtor's prison called hell. And this entire message has been designed, written, prayed over, in order that you might know the difference between the two, in order that you might be able to examine yourself to see which category you fall in. So this Easter morning, I beg of you, I plead with you, examine, search your heart to know whether you've got the sincere, the real, the authentic thing, because that's the only thing that saves. And if you're here this morning and by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you've been convinced that you don't have the real thing. You identify with Bartimaeus blind and helpless and hopeless there along the way to Jericho. What should you do? You should recognize that you've heard about Jesus. I've labored this morning to present to you the core of the Christian faith, what it's all about. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man, and he lived and he died as a ransom for sinners, and he rose again from the dead on the third day, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead and to save those who follow him. You've heard about Jesus. So number two, you need to cry out to Jesus pray to him call to him plead with him and don't stop until he has heard you and until he has saved you which number three he will He will heal your blindness. He will cleanse your heart. He will forgive your sin. He will set you free. He will make you whole. He has sworn by His glory and His name that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And number four, when He does heal you, when He does save you, you must follow Him. Follow Him on the way. And on the way begins with the step of baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in which you unite with Him publicly and say, He is my God and I am His child. So, the time is come. You are Bartimaeus. Blind, helpless, hopeless, sitting by the road. And I tell you this morning on the authority of the Scriptures that the Savior is passing your way. So call to Him. Cry out to Him. Go to Him. Be healed by Him. And then follow Him.